Welcome to episode three of Weekend at Crombies. In this podcast, we'll be shining a light on Quigley Down Under. Hello and welcome to Weekend at Crombies, where two gentlemen philosophers unearth films from the past and raise them to the light once more. My name is Hugh, lethal at 900 yards. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm James. I, I think I'm, I'm going to move away from my uh, proposed catchphrase of biological father of one, philosophical father of many, uh, just because it, it actually sounds a bit creepy. So uh, just just hello will do for now. Uh, it, but I'll, I'll try and say hello in about 700 words. I was about to say, you squeezed, you squeezed a lot into that hello. We begin with Quigley Down Under. It's Australia, it's in the late 19th century, and a steamboat is pulling into um, some kind of Australian port, and out steps uh, a cowboy. We're treated actually to quite a nice cowboy paraphernalia scene of hats and, and spurs and lassoes and stuff like that, all being gathered together. We don't see who this is, but we uh, it pans back and it turns out it's Matthew Quigley, um, who is Tom Selleck uh, in full moustache and regalia. I'd like um, to point out as well that yeah. this, this port... Yes. That he pulls up into in his in his steamboat is is the most Hollywoodized version of an Australian uh, port that could possibly be imagined, given that it would have been in the late nineteenth century. I mean, it's you know it's like a fairy tale port almost, yeah. with uh, cheeky chappies running around and uh, some kind of rumbunctious fights happening. It's I mean it, it's it's borderline ridiculous. So quickly steps off the thing. We learn that he's a nice guy right off the bat. Because he's nice to a little old lady, and he punches a guy in the bollocks. Um, which, 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 I always, I, that, I mean, that, that for me is the defining uh, characteristic of a nice person. If they punch a man in the bollocks, <laughs> absolutely. Once they've done before that, I don't trust them. Punch yeah. a man in the bollocks. That's it. And also, the soundtrack confirms that because the soundtrack swells as soon as his the butt of his rifle goes into that man's testicles. There's a a bit. The soundtrack we should add is fantastic. It's a it's a it's wonderful really cowboy. Good. Um, yeah. swing. So, um, quickly steps off the boat, uh, yeah, walks into this, this rambunctious punch up. But it's a rambunctious punch up where a woman is trying to be abducted by a bunch of cowboys. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's a bit rough to start with. So, um, this is our, our second leading character, who, um, Laura San Giacomo, um, who's playing Crazy Cora. Mm. And she is basically, the, the cowboys are trying to throw on their wagon with a lot, a few other, um, Sex workers, let's call them in, in cowboy terms. I, I like that you're trying to be coy there, but then use the term sex worker. <laughs> I think sex worker is, is the appropriate term. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna come in. Damsels in distress, should we say? <laughs> I think let's assume that Crazy Corret was part of the kind of the brothel they're all working. Because if not, they're just trying to grab a woman off the streets. Um, yeah. Either way, she's, I thought actually, yeah. I thought it was a bit a bit odd that they would just do that, and people don't really seem to be batting an eyelid. I mean, that, maybe this is what happens in Australia. I don't know, but, <laughs> but she seems quite extreme to me. She's really putting up a fight anyway. She doesn't want to get on the wagon, um, and then sort of Quigley, um, in full uh, chivalric mode, decides to help her um, and basically punches the other three guys um, in in a kind of a good jolly fight. You know, the music's trumpeting, and he's pop pop pop. He's bent, you know beating them all up quite nicely. Although quite a lot of blood is drawn, like he he bops one guy on the head, and then a, like huge amounts of blood red stuff gushes from yeah. his forehead. It's got this is getting a bit hardcore. Yeah. Like it's meant well, to be like a, a comedic scrap, and he actually he's going for it. Yeah, it's, it becomes it gets very serious. Yeah. Very quickly. Yes. Although I know he, he doesn't punch anyone in the bollocks though. At this point. <laughs> no, no. He's already done that. 
<laughs> only only one man is punched in the bollocks in the entire film, and it's within the first five minutes. Yeah, five I, seconds. Yeah. Even. Spoiler alert! Actually, if should anyone watch this and see the first five minutes and think there'd be a lot of bollock punching in it, um, <laughs> prepare yourself for disappointment. In 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 the same way that if uh, people are, are tuning into this podcast wanting a film <laughs> review, but actually getting loads of like, two men just saying the word bollocks constantly, testicles. <laughs> Then, you know, you might be a bit disappointed. I suppose it depends what you want, doesn't it? Either way, after Quigley has punched these guys a few times, um, he reveals that he is who he is. I think the reason he says his name is because Crazy Cora assumes he is some person called Roy, um, whom whom she loves. So she flings herself on him. Um, it's you know it's implied she's not her full mind because she's called Crazy Cora and thinks that he is called Roy. He kind of yeah. goes, I'm Matthew Quigley, and then all of a sudden the guys he's fighting go, Ooh, we're meant to fetch you. Um, yeah. So it turns out these are the employees of the person who has hired Matthew Quigley. So they all yeah. get in the bullock wagon. Once he's on the wagon, they spend about ten minutes going through um, an Australia nature documentary. They see kangaroos yeah. and koala bears and this kind of stuff. Um, Beautifully filmed. Indeed. Oh god, yes. The the the, the landscapes is is very good. And again, so and Crazy Cora has come along in the wagon now because she thinks that Quigley is Roy, whom she's very attached to. And yeah. they they kind of have some nice banter back and forth. She's quite good company when she's not assuming he's um, called Roy. But they, again, they, we see lots of you know wide open plains. There's vistas. There's the the cart that goes along. And eventually we arrive at the ranch of Elliot Marsden, played by none other than Alan Rickman. Yeah, a fantastic performance as well. Yeah, he's getting only I think his second screen role, and yeah, yeah, he plays it. He's he's the the, the ranch owner. I was about to say villainous ranch owner, but that's held back until about two minutes <laughs> yeah. on when he yeah. basically executes two uh, runaways. A couple yeah. of deserters yeah. have been yeah. found. We, uh, yeah. It's already been established that the Redcoats um, are fairly snooty, nasty people who go around disparaging Australians and Americans, so clearly they're evil. But he finds a couple of deserters and essentially tricks them into trying to get away and then guns them down with his, his sharpshooting pistol skills. So then, you know, again, the music tells us this is a dark moment and quickly kind of looks grim at him. I mean, the, the, the music is, is a, an integral part of the film, and it, 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 it is a beautiful orchestral soundtrack, I guess, but it, it, it's not very subtle. <laughs> no. it, it tells you exactly how you should be feeling at every single point in the film. Uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not bad for that. It's a very good piece of music, but it, it is, it, it, you know, it doesn't let you kind of merge into the film particularly it's, it's yeah. just it's what I hear like, this guy's bad he goes, dun, 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 dun. Uh, oh uh, crazy Cora here's a fight it's, it's all like that I should point out for fans of musical soundtracks it sounds nothing like that <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, you, you're, you're spot on about how it, how it cues you into yeah, your emotions, yeah, but yeah. It, um, that that um, bit of, uh, of of scat scatting you did just yeah, then yeah. does no I, justify to the the Basil Polidaris uh, music track. I've got nothing if not a tin ear for music. So there we go. <laughs> but actually, we come to the crux of the matter now. So um, it turns out, yeah, Quigley has been hired by by Mr. Marsden because he is the he was he was looking for the best sharpshooter in the world at long distance, um, and rather than write a letter saying how good I am, he sent him a the advertisement with three bullet holes in it saying Matthew Quigley 900 yards. So they uh, they have a lot of business where one of his henchmen rides out with a bucket far into the distance and, he, and further he and further riding. and further and he keeps yeah. riding him and goes My, he'll never do it he's crazy. Yeah. Um, and eventually <laughs> the bucket gets set down and Quigley pulls out a enormous rifle with enormous bullets and yeah. and, uh, and wouldn't you know it he shoots the bucket again and again and again um, this, this poor old bucket is shown no mercy and uh, Matthew Quigley is immediately hired on the spot. And on on the ranch itself with um, with Marsden, there's he has lots of lackeys as well, doesn't he? So there's about there must be about seven or eight people oh, all least, looking yeah. at each other, you know, agog. 
at the fact that Quigley has had the audacity to to do this and and you know wow oh my goodness me what's happening here yeah there's, so yeah there's the a couple of the, the notable lackeys is there's is it Cooper who's the the sleazy yeah. bullock master who who beat yeah. Quigley in the first place and was ran at the yeah. women uh was it O'Flynn is the um yeah. the person they got when they uh couldn't hire Eric Stoltz because he's kind of a, a scrawny redheaded wide eyed kid that just ah but you know who he is though go on he's go on. Ben Mendelsohn, um, who played, I mean, he's quite a famous actor now, who played, um, the, uh, oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but have you seen, um, Rogue One? I have indeed seen Rogue One. So he played. That Ben Mendelsohn! Oh my goodness! That's Ben, get out of it. Ben Mendelsohn is a a craggy, (laughs) long-faced Australian man. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that's him, that's, that was Ben Mendelsohn's second or third film. Well, there you go. Oh, yeah. oh, Flynn. They, so the 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 sorry, the person I mistook for just an Eric Stoltz wannabe, which in fairness yeah. he he could easily have been played by Eric Stoltz. <laughs> yeah, he could have he could have fallen um, into obscurity. I think. Um, or he had to age another thirty years to start getting those good roles. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Ben yeah. Mendelsohn is a lot better as an old man. He doesn't. He, he was a completely rubbish young boy. Yeah, I know. yeah. He looks scrawny and weird. Yeah, um, yeah. And as an old man, yeah, he carries it well. Also, we have the the um, the ranch master, who's kind of a Mr. Mr. Marsden's. The person in charge of all the lackeys is Dobkin, who's uh, oh, again, it, yeah. Mr. Dobkin, uh, who wears a Scotch bonnet um, and has a yeah. Byronic shock of hair, and seems very competent. <laughs> but anyway, these are a smattering of the henchmen, um, and and so uh, so they're all left out in the cold while Quigley and Mr. and Marsden have their their posh dinner, yeah. again served by uh, an Aboriginal uh, butler, um, who's the kind of the first sense we see, I think, of any um, Aboriginal people in this film, but not the last. Yeah. No, and I, I think yeah, this is a point in the film where it, it, we start to realise that perhaps something isn't quite right with the uh, the contract, I suppose, yeah. and, and that Quigley is suddenly starting to realise that maybe this person isn't all he's. He's been brought under false pretenses. Yeah. Perhaps. So Quigley made a three-month journey by, by steamship to Australia. Yeah. Uh, he then yeah. travelled a couple of more days over on a on a, a cart, and then. Yeah. He then asks, why is he here? Because he thinks he's been hired to kill dingoes. Yeah, you'd, you'd have sorted that out beforehand, wouldn't you, really? You'd think. Even just the cost of a telegram would say, why am I coming? Um, but it turns out um, Mr. Marsden does not want to kill dingoes. He wants to kill Aborigines, lots and lots of them. Um, yeah. And if, um, he can only do that by having a rifle that will shoot beyond what is presumed to be the effective range of a rifle. I, I can't quick... remember why, though. I can't remember the reason why he wants to kill them. I mean, well, it's, it's, he's it's, obviously it's... a nasty character, yeah. yes. Partly he's he's got this you know being his bonnet about um you know the civil civilized man must you know must tame the the wild man, yeah. but his, his more specific reason is he said his parents were killed by Aborigines. Oh, so he's, he's got he's got the personal vendetta. <clears throat> so that, that's I mean, he kind of throws that aside. But he definitely you know he's in full Anna Rickman villain mode now. He's he's staring over the candlelight um, and enunciating very clearly that he must eradicate every one of them. Um, <laughs> and he's he's annoyed because the 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 Aborigines have um, found a way of being out out of rifle range yeah. um, because they they know the land so well they're always just out of rifle range so yeah. they don't have so the you know they don't have the ability to shoot them but of course Quigley can absolutely um, although Quigley won't because then Quigley no. immediately throws um, Marsden out through the window of his own house. Um, it's quite a good scene as well because it cuts directly to the outside of the house as 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 Marsden is thrown 
extravagantly through through the the it's the glass, isn't it? The, it is, the yeah. diamond. Yeah, we're going to put a pin in that moment because that's the moment I want to return to when we analyse this film because um, we're just doing the swift recap at the moment. Yeah, uh, this, but... and we, we've, we've got to the first 10 minutes of the film. <laughs> no, funny, this is 30 minutes in. I, I clocked the time because I thought, this is where the plot begins and it's taken yeah. 30 minutes to get to this point yeah. Yeah. Um, because otherwise it's mostly just been Quigley being a good Samaritan and, and riding through the Australian outback. Um, the seed yeah. that. So yeah. Marsden is, is outraged, runs back in, gets thrown out again, which is just comedy. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's completely it played for laughs. Um, yeah. But and so then the, again, the music tells you an enormous showdown's about to happen. Quigley's inside the house. He's tipped the table over. He's lining his bullets up. He's got his rifle ready. The the gangs are surrounding the house, ready to storm it. And all of a sudden, the music cuts abruptly as the the butler whacks Quigley on the back of the head and ends the scene. So there's yeah. there's no confrontation, no shootout. Quigley is done for. He's he's been uh, beaten. The next cut to him actually being physically kicked and, and punched by the whole crew. Again, it's, quite, it's quite it's quite visceral again, actually, as, isn't it? As again, it's, yeah, it's it's not quite strong. Yeah. It's it's not what you'd imagine a cowboy is, you know, a couple of um, you know saloon uh, punches and this kind of stuff. He's he's on the floor getting kicked. Um, and I mean, up up until up until this point, the film it feels quite light-hearted. Yeah, yeah. and it feels like it's a, a a kind of a light comedy western almost. And once genocide is put on the table, I think yeah. actual yeah. violence is shown. Yeah. Uh, because again, Crazy Cora runs to Quigley's rescue and nearly claws someone's face off. Like her, her claw yeah. marks or her nail marks have torn down this guy's face. And it's like, well, this is going to be very hardcore. So she's, you know, punched as well. And they're both beaten senseless. And he, um, and of course, in true supervillain mode, Mr. Marsden doesn't just shoot them both from there and then. He tells two of his henchmen, Take them out two days from here and dump them, and we'll let the desert kill them. For so I, I, have, this... I have a theory about this as well, oh, which, 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 well, I'll, we'll come on to it when we okay. talk about the analysis. But it, it, it irritates me slightly, and it's a, it's a common trait in lots of films. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> so either way, um, you, um, you may, if you know films, you may not guess what's coming next. But the two henchmen, one of which is Cooper, this is the first kind of named villain we've seen. And the yeah. two henchmen take Quigley out. Um, but wouldn't even know, he managed to outsmart them. So he has a hidden knife, he kills Cooper, and as the other guy is riding away um, at the top speed in his wagon, Quigley kind of, you know, picks up the rifle, luckily that Cooper was carrying, and the bullets, luckily that Cooper was carrying, um, <laughs> and manages, again, it's a wonderful scene, though, because this guy is tearing along in the wagon, terrified for his life. Quigley, you know, he's picking himself up, dusting his eyes off, trying to get a good sight, and bang, whoop, another guy's dead. So he kills immediately. Um, but the horses carry on going, um, having more sense to stick around. So... This means now Quigley and Cora um, are alone in the Australian outback with nothing but a rifle between them, and they yeah. have to fend for themselves. Uh, and it's not very long before they both sort of just collapsed from exhaustion and, and uh, fatigue and dehydration, at which point they're discovered by um, an Aboriginal tribe who, despite being hunted by guys in cowboy hats and guns, decide to, to look after them. Yeah, inexplicably, yes. they... they uh decide against their better judgment almost given that everything has, that has gone on in australia up until that point to go oh you know but this this guy might be all right and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, he is but they don't know that they even make reference to it saying you know um, why, why have they spared us when every guy with a gun is their enemy and they don't yeah. answer the question they just go that's funny isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah um, they just raise it yeah <laughs> uh, but again there's uh what happens next is more like um Kind of like the Australian film board's cultural exchange. They they yeah. they eat witchetty grubs and they're shown how uh, how to fetch water from the ground. And the uh, yeah. he shows them a lasso and she shows them how to knit. And they show how to kind of um, play a didgeridoo. I think a didgeridoo is in the scene. It's literally like let's take all the stuff that you'd imagine would be in Australia and we'll show it to you now in our little montage of Quigley and Cora meet the Aborigines. 
And it's, it's all very mystical as well. I mean, in, in some respects, it's it's very respectful of, of that it approach. Is, but it, yeah. it, it's, it, 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 I don't know, it, it feels a little bit odd as well in the sense that it's a... It, the music is a little bit mystical and um oh you know the aboriginal tribe they're they're it's very they use perhaps they use magic to help to help them recover perhaps they don't perhaps it's their intimate knowledge of the land but there's something a little bit kind of mysterious and and um, unusual about them i, I you know it, it, it's that it's very stereotypical yeah this is what troubled me is that it it's it is respectful in the sense it's not poking fun or making them seem no it's no, not, yeah, at, all, it, not but, at all but yeah. it's also I have no knowledge of whether, you know, you have didgeridoos and war painting yeah. and all this stuff in one group and that's the normal thing. But it seems like if I was to imagine a stereotypical scene, I'd throw yeah. didgeridoos and war painting which do well, exactly. in that scene. Yeah. Um, so who knows? I mean, but it, 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 yeah. Crocodile Dundee did it about four years earlier as well. Yeah. There is a scene in Crocodile Dundee where he, he becomes part of this Aboriginal tribe and they were yeah. taking, they're taking drugs and they're dancing around, they've got spears and you think, well, you know, how many more, how many more times can Aborigines be represented it on film in exactly the same way. I mean, I appreciate that it's set in the 19th century, so it's a different context, but it's yeah. bad. We'll save this analysis, but I was thinking, should we compare this to, say, if, you know, Quigley is down under, if this was in, you know, actually, America, and yeah. these were Native Americans, if, yeah. you know, if you saw someone with a massive feathered headdress, and they were kind yeah. of whooping around a totem pole and this kind of stuff, you'd probably think, that looks a bit stereotypical, and you'd call it yeah. a lot easier. Maybe it's, it's a bit distasteful, isn't it? Yeah, it maybe, maybe it's yeah. if it was at one remove because you know American audiences are seeing this and they don't have that cultural sensitivity in the same way, they can get away with it a lot more because it's. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah, but again, once again, it's uh, we so it's all very nice and they're very pleasant when they recover, but then tone shift happens um, when they wake up the next morning. Um, part of Marston's guys are hunting these Aborigines down and literally just killing like the young girls and the 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 men and the elders that we oh, we yeah. were we were bonding with a few minutes ago they're getting shot and i'll tell you what it, it's one hell of a tonal shift yeah do kill a few again quigley goes whips out his rifle and pops them all off one survivor gets away and rides home to tell the tale to, to marsden but yeah i mean it literally yeah laura sandra was left cradling one of the the, the young woman she befriended and swapped a button with her um yeah. and that's that's like that was that was unpleasant um <laughs> <laughs> but but they continue on. Um, what's their next adventure? They because they have a couple. There's a couple of these recurring things where they happen where they. Um, oh, that was it. This this is the moment. Talk about a tonal shift. This is the moment when they're being um, looked after by the Aborigines, and like before when they're around the fireplace, yeah. where Crazy Cora has a moment of lucidity and sits down and tells Quigley what her life story was, and it's yeah. not pleasant. No, um, and why why she calls him Roy, yeah. specifically, and why, why why she's called Crazy Cora. So she has had a um, a, a, a terrifying experience um, back in, I can't remember where they're Texas. from, but back where she um, is uh, with her uh, her baby, yeah. and um, her husband leaves the house to go to work or, or, or something like that, and then um, the, the, uh, uh, the house is... Yeah, the Comanches. Yeah, they 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 attack the house, and um, she tries to protect her her baby, who starts to scream and scream. They hide, but she the baby's screaming and screaming, and she covers the baby's mouth to stop it screaming. And then she, the Comanches leave, and then that she realizes that what she's actually done is smothered the baby, and um, her husband comes back and realizes what's happened, and he uh, she's obviously distraught. But then he he um, takes her to uh, the first. Um, ship that's leaving the port uh for australia yeah and, and, and uh, she's australian so she's obviously gone completely bonkers yeah. because because of this absolute tragedy that's happened and again it's a, it's an incredible tonal shift because it's really well acted 
She, um, she does a very good job of it. Um, but if you're yeah, expecting a light-hearted cowboy film, this is the yeah. one that tells you not quite. Um, no, and it justifies it justifies her 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 um, odd oddities within the film as well. And I think it you 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 immediately become sympathetic to the character in that regard. I think. Yeah. Um, but yes, but that's that's the moment that happens, and it's um it's um it's dark. I mean, the, the whole story. The, it, one one aspect of it is she's saying the Comanches came in and frightened her, and it turns out they were just drunk. They weren't trying to kill them. They were just messing around. But she yeah. she she misinterpreted them and, and panicked. And I was thought, is that trying to say something about you know the relationship between sort of settlers and native people? In fact, mm. you know, but also it's just a dark thing to happen. I mean, they they could have made her a tragic story in many other ways. It's yeah. it's it's a terrible image to have in your head. And um, it's, it really is, yeah. yeah. But it, but it does. It, there is a there is a distinctive plot point for that though, there because is, yeah. she obviously bonds with one of the. Um, uh, baby Aborigines, um, who she rescues, and obviously we'll come on to that in, in a moment. But it's, it's important that it's important that it's revealed at that point because it drives a lot of the plot points moving forward. But yeah, so this though, after he Quigley's sort of getting down the people chasing him, one gets back to Marsden, and we begin the whole kind of like, oh, Quigley's alive, let's start yeah. the hunt for him, and this kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's then that Quigley and Cora encounter the next scene, which again is darker than the previous one, because it, it's not just yeah, yeah, insane. It's not just Aborigines being chased down by a couple of cowboys and horseback and shot. It's a whole tribe of people being herded off a cliff. Um, yeah. So this is what happens. Marsden's men are herding a, a, like twenty or thirty Aborigines yeah. off a cliff. Um, yeah. And you see them falling, and you see the dead bodies littering around, and they have close-ups on the dead faces yeah. afterwards. And it's it's presented for you there. And they're like, "This is a bad thing, isn't it?" It's like, "Yes, this is a very bad thing." What's interesting about the way that that is filmed as well is that it, it doesn't cut away, and it doesn't it, it it you are you are required to watch what's happening in that context. It's yeah. quite a difficult watch, as you yeah. say. And it, it it you know you hear the screams, you hear the the um the the corralling of of uh, Marsden's men you you and the screams seem real you know they are it's very effective and as yeah. they fall off the and, and i don't really know how it's filmed because you see them falling off the cliff i mean i'm assuming real murder didn't take place <laughs> but you see them falling off the cliff and i it's it's a very it's a quite a shocking scene actually it is and again um again quigley is doing these usual stoic cowboy look laura's hanjakamo her face sells it a lot because you see a good close up on her face absolutely yeah. appalled by what's that and um and it's that moment when um, as they go through the dead bodies at the end they find that a baby has survived when it's been yes. cushioned by the fall um and so so crazy cora has a baby to look after um so they and also again quickly does usually thing he gets his rifle out and kills all the all of marston's men that's kind of a given um yeah, well, so, yeah. so, so, as soon as his it's, rifle it's comes out he's just, as soon as his rifle comes out he just you know, pop one dead pop one dead yeah. pop one dead it's, it's almost a, a flaw of being an excellent sharpshooter there's very yeah. little tension once he starts firing about what's going to happen well, that is exactly what I was going to say. Actually, it's almost like he has a superpower, yeah. and as, as as a consequence of him having a superpower, you know he's not going to miss, and so that's the end of that. So they have that. There's an interesting scene actually when he he interrogates one of the men who's mortally wounded, and it's the only time he loses his temper ever in the movie, and it's an mm. odd thing because he's even in throughout all these trials and tribulations, everything happens. He has that kind of calm cowboy stoicism. Yeah. And there's one point he just yells at this guy who's mortally wounded um, because he's not given him specific enough directions. Because yeah, the whole so thing he is asks, like he asks the directions back to Marsden's ranch, doesn't yeah. he? And uh, he's saying, "No, oh, I'm not going to do that." And he said, "Well, all right. Well, I can kill you if you give me the directions, <laughs> yeah. or if you don't give me the directions, I'll leave. I'll leave. I'll leave you 
to die a painful and slow death. And he gets really angry. But the guy starts saying, Mazen's ranch is two miles to the southwest. And he goes, talk straight. It's like, he is telling you these things. Yeah. I don't know whether they needed him to show a bit of emotion because of what had just happened, but it was a, it was it was he's not much of an interrogator because he's telling him the direction and the yep. distance, um, and that's clearly There's not, not a, <laughs> Here, have my compass as well. <laughs> if you given the postcode, he could have sat nabbed it. So that's really what you know. That's what all you need is a postcode, and you don't need any direction. But yeah, so um, and then of course the. Uh, there's, again, there's a, a, the, there are a lot of nice cowboy moments where we've been we've been dismissive of this film, but if this as a, as a straight cowboy film, you know, there's some great stoats like um, once he's given the directions and this guy then gets his hand on a pistol and is about to shoot Quigley and Quigley doesn't flinch, just goes, "You've got one bullet left, you'd better pick it right." And of yeah. course, he's saying the guy needs to kill himself if he doesn't want to die yeah. a horrible, painful death, and he does exactly that. So there's lots yeah. of like, you know, the um, the, uh, the the strong silent type. Um, yeah. There's moments like that. There, there are, and you know, I think I think as a it's an unusual cowboy film, I guess, in many ways, but there are some cowboy film tropes in it yeah. which work quite nicely. So now the other part is three. There's Quigley, Cora, and the little baby. Uh, they hole up in a cave, and, of course, Quigley needs to go and get supplies to feed them, and it's much quicker to get to the nearest town by himself. Um, so he yeah. leaves Cora and the baby with the shotguns while he goes off to, to get supplies. Yeah, um, he's got a horse now. He he's got... managed to get a horse, yeah. yeah. Um, and... And wouldn't you know it, um, the same thing happens to Cora. She's on her own with the baby while her, her protector is out. And it's not Comanches this time, it's dingoes. The dingoes uh, start prowling around and the baby's crying and Cora starts shushing it. And you could see where this is going. She re- you know, she has her redemptive moment. She doesn't smudge the baby. Um, she instead grabs her guns and shoots the, all the dingoes. But it's she has that moment when she has her hands over the baby's lips and she you know she realizes what she's doing and it's it's again quite disturbing to watch it is yeah. i actually think it's really well acted again as uh, yeah. as well she she puts in a a, a really solid performance particularly yeah. in that scene yeah. because um you i'm not sure given what's happened before and given the the the, the tonal shifts yeah. at that point in time i don't know whether she is actually going to smother the baby or not yeah. Because there's a moment, a split second before she starts fighting back, she holds the up and goes, "You want to cry? Let's cry! Yeah. Let's!" Go. I thought, yeah. "What's, what's going to happen here?" I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, she's unpredictable, and I yeah. think that's quite a good point in it because you don't know quite what's going to happen here. Um, I mean, you kind of have you, you think, all right, she can't, she's obviously not going to to smother the baby because that wouldn't be a big Hollywood redemptive moment, yeah. but you never quite know. Uh, but anyway, so she then, yeah, of course, uh, being a native-born Texican, gets her guns and blows all the dingoes away. So that's a happy ending. Although I will say, again, in terms of uh, of, of Hollywood tropes, they always seem to see um, say that if you've been traumatised, the best thing for you is to undergo exactly the same type of trauma. Um, <laughs> uh, because, that, that, I mean, she could have had anything. She could have just cared for the baby and returned it to, to his, its tribe or whatever. Uh, but yeah. no, she has to be in the same situation that she was in before to relive it and come out the other end. And whilst that is, you know, a very narrative way of, of dealing with it, it is a bit like saying if you've been hit by a car, the best thing for you is to be hit by another car. Yeah, but this time you dent the car. <laughs> yeah, you show back. <laughs> the car comes off worse. Yeah. And the other thing that is interesting as well, you're, you're right. The, the, the best way to the best way that, to deal with that tragedy and the redemptive narrative is to 
deal with it again and come out the other side better. But you've got to come out the other side having used a massive gun yeah. and killed <laughs> lots of people yeah. or lots of animals and have a kind of bloodlust as a consequence yeah. of it. Because she, if yeah. you don't have any of that, it's not worth it. She could have been sat down and explained that, you know, she made a bad decision when she was panicked and in fear and actually her husband Roy was not supportive of her and should have helped her. She was just a much of a victim and all that kind of stuff. But Or she could get a lot of guns and kill loads of dingoes. Um, and that seemed yeah. to work just as well, so that's all right. Just as well, yeah. Yeah. We should point out. We, we should also point out that at this at this stage in the film, it's fairly clear that uh, Matthew Quigley and Crazy Cora are, if not an item, but are very strongly becoming an item. Yes, um, there's there is a romance here as well. There is. There's there's a lot of meet cute where she, on one hand, still pretends to think or, or does think he's Roy, um, and yeah. and calls him this, and then he doesn't like her because he thinks you know, he she, he wants her to love him for Matthew Quigley. Yeah. Um, and again, where she calls him Matthew Quigley, and so there, there, there's nothing physical going on, but there's lots of to and froing, and it's quite sweet to see they're quite a good couple together. They do. They have good chemistry, I think. Yeah. There was there were some good lines. I remember they're trying to eat the witchy grub, um, and yeah. Quigley is refusing to eat anything that moves. And she's like, "What are you going to do? Shoot it first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good actually. <laughs> Which again, again, I think the, again the actress Laura Sanjakan was quite a good comic timing. She's 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 a very personable. Um, Supporting out, yeah, she is, yeah. That, and I think, yeah, yeah, that that role could have tipped over into a kind of quirkiness or a kookiness, and it, it didn't. It 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 stayed the right side of yeah. of sympathetic. I but think. Or it could have tipped the other way into just wretched, and you'd you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd feel yeah. so awful for this character. You couldn't you couldn't just watch them. But um, yeah, she she does manage to balance a lot of the kind of stuff. Again, the the fact that her story her backstory is so horrible is nothing on the way it's sold. It's portrayed very well. Um, is, but while she, but while she's in that, um, Quigley is uh, is in town, basically getting more bullets and some condensed milk. Um, yeah. and <laughs> Although before that, he's having a nice, a sumptuous dinner. He's having with, a, <laughs> a German family or a Dutch family. I'm going to go with German family, and I'm pretty sure that the um, the the old storekeeper isn't Grandpa Joe from Charlie the Chocolate Factory, but he could easily be. He's a, could easily be. Yeah, he's, he's a wizened be, yeah. old man um, who, again, uh, who uh, who again hates Marsden. Luckily, Marsden is is this, is this horrible man who uh, who sells puts. Poisoned flower to Aborigines or whatever. Um, and there's his, his son, who's many, many years younger than him, um, given this is an old man and the boy's about yeah. 10. He's, he's, he's about 10. Well, I would imagine he, f- he sired that child yeah. in his very late 60s. Yeah. But, um, which, is, which is, I mean, fair play. But like the old dog, yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is now is, is he quickly is known. He's, his, wife, his, his wife is famous, his, his skills are known, and the Aborigines apparently refer to him as the spirit warrior who protects them. Um, in another extraordinarily stereotypical <laughs> moment well, in the film. Well, the interesting part of this is, it's been a day since he got dumped. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, this all, yeah, this has all happened in that day. Yeah, because we, we, we actually track the days and nights. It could be more yeah. than a day or two, Um, in which time yeah. he has actually killed Marsden's men when they're killing Aborigines twice over, so there's something. He has been a protector. But that's a quick time for a legend to turn around. You know, the, 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 in a, in a yeah. pre-internet age, no one's been tweeting about Matthew Quigley here. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah I, I don't know what the time frame for a legend to develop actually is, but it's not a day. No. Um, Legends aren't made in a day, are they? Or maybe no. they are. And they, they could have done something with this. You know, they could have had Quigley living in the outback and, and you know, bit by bit picking off Marsden's men, but it didn't. It was, it was a day where he kills large amounts of men in a small amount of time. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know how the Aborigines rate a spirit warrior, but apparently he is—he is now passed into Aboriginal legend. Uh, but, but anyway, so he's in town, and uh, when you know it, some ma- more of Marsden's men are in town. And I mean, you'd be amazed there are any left. There are, given how many he's killed. <laughs> but they're, they're more—they they discover him, um, and, yeah. and a fight breaks out, and 
you can probably see where it's going, is that Quigley is initially surprised, manages to get the upper hand, kills all but one of them who escapes. Yeah. Um, always one escapes. Always one. But this is the interesting part, is that in the shootout, the nice German um, lady who was, who was so nice to Quigley, the, the, the short storekeeper's wife, she's killed. So we, we then cut to really an unnecessary cruel scene of, of, um, of this, this, yeah. this, this, this nice old German man and his little boy cradling their dead mother who got caught in the firefight. And he actually does the whole kind of, why, why? Yeah. Um, it's unnecessarily nasty, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's just totally, but, totally And wrong. that's what tips Quigley over the edge. He then grabs yeah. the henchmen that live and says, tell Marston I'm coming for him. So you assume this yeah. is his tipping point where um, he now goes from trying to escape and evade and get home to I'm going to end Marston. Yeah. The reason I find this curious is Quigley has just witnessed a whole tribe of Aborigines herded off a cliff, and yeah. that wasn't enough to make him go, I've got to stop Marsden. <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, so the Aborigines be... must be thinking, hang on a minute, <laughs> yeah. 20 of us had to be killed. Yeah, you're our but spirit warrior. One... And... <laughs> yeah, yeah, one German woman was enough to tip you over, yeah. thanks, Quigley. And you're right, it, it, in, the, in the film, it is an unnecessarily cruel moment for a, a random nice bystander to be killed, but... Yeah. Compared to what we've seen before, it's you know, yeah, it's, it's like one twentieth yeah. of a necessarily cruel, um, yeah, and, and that's and also Quigley started the firefight. It wasn't like Marsden's men came into town shooting their guns off and terrorizing people. If Quigley hadn't wasn't there, that woman yeah. wouldn't be dead. It's not like he caused it, but you know it wasn't like no, Marsden. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, was but they, 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 they don't find him for that though. I mean, no. it, again, it's not Quigley's fault. Yeah. But if, if if they hadn't welcomed him into their home to buy a can of condensed milk. <laughs> By a can of condensed milk, they'd all be alive. Yeah, yeah. And once again, we can talk about the, the tone in this. Quigley's fight with these guys, because there's a lot of running around town, buildings on fire, yeah. he's jumping out of windows and this kind of stuff. And a lot of it's played for laughs. He like he he's on the roof and he drops a chimney pot on one of the guy's heads, and he yeah. he, he, he jumps into a barn and it turns out the barn collapses and he ends up in the hay or whatever. And the music again it's plays it like comedy. So yeah. once again, he, like so it's it's comedy. But then we jump right back to dead German mother. Um, <laughs> But we, uh, but either we're we're racing into the finale now. Um, yeah. I think we can get. Pleased to hear. I think we can get this synopsis <laughs> at the end of the hour. You know, <laughs> we're coming to the finale now. So having decided vengeance must be had, he he you know loads up his things. He um, fetches Cora from the the cave. They return the Aboriginal baby to to a tribe. Kind of Cora again has a tearful farewell with him, uh, which again is a, a nice scene for her to play in terms of I'm never going to see yeah. you again. Yeah, Does, he's nice to play as well. Yeah. It does also play back, though, we've seen Quigley escape from every situation he's been in and never lose a gunfight. So when she says I'll never see you again, it's like, I think he'll survive. I think he'll be all right. <laughs> he seems quite formidable. Yeah, yeah, he does, yeah. I mean, if he has superpowers. He's the wind spirit. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, but so then when we cut back, and this is when we cut back to the ranch, so he's coming for Alan Rickman um, and his henchmen. And it's really the first time we get to see Alan Rickman properly villainous since he first appeared. He's, he's not been yeah. in much of the film. Um, well, and, he's, and actually, he doesn't have a, it, when, when it comes to it, doesn't actually have a huge role in the film, really. He's in maybe four or five scenes. Yeah, he just seems like he does. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, when you sit back and think, I'm going to enjoy a lot of Alan Rickman villainy, it's, there's not a lot to it. Um, but anyway, he's, yeah. he's champing around the ranch, basically you know, yelling at his, his subordinates and, uh, and this kind of stuff. Um, and Quigley is against just hiding up in the hills, picking them off um, yeah. until they decide, again, if, um, he decides to send his men up into the hills to, to fetch him. Um, there's, there's more toing and froing um, where Quigley is basically he's set ambushes for them and he's picking them off but he finally manages to, to lose a fight probably on although two although not accounts. mortally obviously not mortally not, not mortally but the uh, the fight he loses is firstly uh, Mr. Dobkin is the only one of any of the henchmen not to try and outdraw Quigley um, because in, in yeah. all the, the many many fights Quigley's been in 
he has a henchman. He's got his rifle pointed at him, and we know he's quite good at shooting things with his rifle. He tells yeah. the henchman, "Don't try and draw your gun, or I'll kill you." The henchman tries to draw his gun, and he kills him. And he kills him, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and this happens several times, and you'd think there'd be some kind of learning curve would be involved in this. Um, yeah. But Mr. Dobkin, who again has been sending all his men around, comes out, you know, feigning surrender and not trying to draw quickly, which distracts him enough for O'Flynn, um, who's Again, trying to be the, the boy when the sharpshooter to shoot Quigley in the leg. Um, so he gets a little flesh wound, but we get him. So the um, the two surviving members of all the, the many dozens of cowboys under Marston's control drag Quigley back to the ranch. With um, with O'Flynn at this point screaming, I got Quigley! Indeed. I shot Quigley! Indeed. And in fairness, those two employees have done pretty well. Um, so they have, yeah, <laughs> given that he's a super he's a superman. Yeah, the they, they've taken him down. And and what happens next, they'd probably be quite disappointed with, because having now captured and trussed up Quigley, Marsden decides to let him go and give him a loaded revolver yeah. um, on the basis he thinks he can outdraw Quigley. Um, but, and this is an interesting point, because um, going back to the first scene with Quigley and Marsden, yeah. um, Mar- uh, Marsden is obviously a sharpshooter with a with a, a pistol. Yeah. And um, Quigley at the time says, I've not got much use for pistols. Yeah. Um, that's why he has a big rifle. He prefers the rifle. Yeah. And Marsden, in this final shootout, this final kind of pistols at dawn scene, obviously gives Quigley the pistol, assuming that he can't use a pistol. He's not very effective at a pistol. Yeah. Erroneously, as it turns out. <laughs> it's indeed. But he has quite a nice line, uh, Quigley. He has quite yeah. a nice line. He is, uh, uh, I never said I had... I said I had not much use for it. Never said I know how to use one. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Because yeah. um, uh, he's dying on the floor. Yeah. And immediately he, he whips out his pistol and shoots all three men dead. <laughs> yeah. Almost almost at once. Yeah, yeah. The, the camera pop, pop, pops and they're all gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that was that. So that that was rather foolish of Marston. Um, but funny, if the film doesn't quite end there, there's there's a a long tail because it's a odd, yeah, odd. <laughs> yeah. So so the villain's dead. We think that's it. But then um, again, the Aboriginal butler walks off, flinging his butler clothes um, into the air yeah. um, to, to I guess, rejoin his tribe. Um, yeah. Then the British cavalry turn up um, and get threatened to gun down quickly. Now there's about fifty of them, so he's not going to shoot his way out of this. Um, no. But just as they're about to take him prisoner, the entire horizon is filled yeah. with Aboriginal people. Um, yeah. The wind like, starts rising as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, the, 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 um, it's very supernatural. But also, it's perfect timing, because that's a big horizon for them all to know they have to appear right now and scare off the Redcoats, um, yeah. who are immediately scared off and run away. And so Quigley, I don't know if he salutes them, but yeah, they have a little nod of understanding. But um, well, it's, Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a, again, it's a nicely played scene by Tom Selleck, because yeah. he's standing there in front of these 50... Uh, British infantrymen, and then all these Aborigines uh, are on the horizon, on the cliffs, and everything like that. And then uh, Quigley looks looks at the infantrymen with just a smirk on his face, as if yeah. to say, uh, "Come on, then, what are you going to do?" Which <laughs> is quite nice, really. Yeah. Um, and so now Quigley he gets away. He's now booking passage back on to go home to America. Uh, and and the last odd moment happens is when the uh, the the, book, the person selling the ticket, who we will describe, he's about four foot tall with tiny little glasses and a, and a wisp yeah. of a man. Uh, and but this little ticket man um, has under his desk a, a wanted poster for Matthew Quigley and a revolver, and he asks Tom Selleck his name for the ticket. Um, mm. The implication being, if he says Matthew Quigley, he's going to get sh- drawn on. Um, yeah. So and this minute it's played for tension because basically Quigley says he sees um, he sees Crazy Cora waiting from the doorway and says, "My name's Roy," and that's kind of his admission that he now loves her. That's his his way of saying that. Um, and then of course because he said Roy, that actually has also saved his life because. Um, 
at least not Matthew Quigley, so they both managed to get away on the boat. Uh, but the implication that after everything he's gone through, this tiny ticket officer is going <laughs> to threaten him in any way, shape or form. And also he's that, a pathetic character as well. Because it's paid he? for Paris, like, Ooh, what's going to happen now? What's, it's like, if he drew on him, he is not going to get the drop on him at all. <laughs> Stand right there, Matthew Quigley. <laughs> But also, is this common practice for ticket sellers to be armed? I mean, I, I've never been behind the kiosk at a, at a train station, but if I give the wrong name, am I going to get a revolver well, not, in the face? It's not called the Wild West for nothing. Yeah. It's not called the Wild West at all. It's Australia. I'd, expe- I'd expect him to maybe have a, a can of beer behind his desk. <laughs> yeah, a tinny. A can and of a barbecue. A tinny, uh, yeah, a small barbecue. <laughs> He's putting some prawns on the barbecue, and his wife's called Sheila, of course. Oh, yes. And, and he's uh, called Bruce. But anyway, that that's it. We've we've made it through the synopsis, um, and, uh, and in, re- in record time. I, I, no, wouldn't, no. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Unless well, record I mean, time is the longest we've taken to get through a synopsis. To, to all our listeners as well, I should point out that before we started recording, we had a conversation about how we could make the synopsis of Weekend at Crombie's section shorter. And we have proceeded to have the longest. <laughs> I have. The, I, I will say my solution now is I'm putting timestamps of when the synopsis bit ends. <laughs> so basically, if you're listening to this, just jump ahead to an hour, and you'll get to the bit we analyse the film. <laughs> this, this is just this is the warmer. This is the the yeah. hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> this is the witchetty grub you must chew on if you're going to have your kangaroo steak afterwards. <laughs> Join us in the next stage when we shall analyse the film and uh, and some themes. Welcome back, as uh, we now look at, well, we'll look at the reason why I chose Quigley Dander. It was my turn to choose, and uh, the reason I chose it uh, was because I saw it in 1990 when it came out. I imagine not many others did. Um, what put it in my mind, actually, was just a couple of years ago, the passing of Alan Rickman, just thinking about all the, the varied roles he'd played, and it occurred to me that he really has what you'd consider a, uh, a pantomime villain trilogy of when he first started appearing in movies. I guess the most famous one being Hans Gruber in Die Hard. And, um, yes, the, yes. The, Actually, I was going to say Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That would actually. be the third. Well, that'd be more famous than Die Hard, surely not. Well, um, yeah, maybe not, but it's the, it's the one that popped into my head, I have to yeah. say. Well, they're both, I, I, yeah. I forgot Alan Rickman was in um, Die Hard. They're, well, they're both, again, they're both pretty well-known big films, and this they one are. isn't. Hence, this one is featuring Weekend at Crombie's. But, <laughs> yeah. um, this, but this one, again, I, I saw as the, the bridging point between it, because, again, Hans Gruber is... It's obviously Die Hard is a kind of a lightish action film, but it's played yeah. straight. He's, he's, he is a very it's good sinister villain. Yeah. And Robin Hood with the Thieves is playing just the best pantomime villain you can possibly imagine. Um, yeah. And this one, I, f- I remembered as being something between the two, and I think that's been borne out. He, he is yeah. Marsden is a very sinister character who is brutal and 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 you know, very cold-eyed. On the other yeah. hand, he is being thrown out of windows and constantly berating his, his henchmen and, yeah. and jumping up and down. And, and I mean, you're right. In, in, in many ways, it's, he, it's an interesting character. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say that this, this pantomime villain is an interesting character. Yeah. But, but Rickman plays him really well uh, to the extent that it, it is, he is brutal, but he's also pathetic. Yeah. Because he is totally driven by his own insecurities and his ego. Yeah. And that, that I find, it, that is, and that's ultimately his downfall. Um, and, and Rickman plays it 
perfectly pitch perfect, I think. Yeah, he really again, what he really wants to be is a cowboy. He's he's kind of fascinated he by Quigley. Yeah. Um, it's probably the reason why he'd hire a cowboy with all you. Know, he paid him a lot of gold to come over here. He what yeah. you know he carries his pistol, his, his hip, and he wants to be a sharpshooter. Um, he was you know he's he was gushing when he heard that he could he stayed in Dodge City and he and he could have met Bill Hickok and this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think really none of that is necessary in the character or the film. It's Alan Rickman brings yeah. all it to it. You could have just been yeah. Marsden is the bad boss and you have to kill him. Um, yeah, exactly. And in the end, what what he actually is is a kind of he's a pathetic middle manager. In, in, in you know you, you expect him to see him if it was in modern times, it'd just be it'd be that it'd be that manager who nobody likes but is vindictive and. Uh, holds grudges and, and has a, a personal vendetta against people. You know, he's a, he's just a nasty piece of work, but he's pathetic. Yeah. Um, so that was the reason for seeing it, was I wanted to revisit it. Having now revisited it, we can now go, go straight into our deep dive, um, was that, again, my first take on it was, you know, a teenager, I like the cowboy fights, the gunfights, all very fun. You watch it again, you know, with sort of fresher eyes, and again, it is, we talked about it in the, the synopsis, wildly varied in tone. Um it's some parts of it are you know quite a light cowboy film that way you know so there were some gags you know basically a a good strong cowboy has to get the better of of the bad guys and he'll do that when he's necessary and then you have genocide imperialistic genocide and infanticide you know so on on a grand scale it's awful what's being seen another scale it is a personal tragedy as well neither of which seem to fit in this kind of film no, I, 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 I know exactly what you mean. And what, what, what I think exacerbates that is the, the casting of Tom Selleck, yeah. um, who, who I think is very good as Matthew Quigley, don't get me wrong. But, but he, Selleck is, or had up until that point been known for light romantic comedies, uh, you know, things like Three Men and a Baby, for example. Yeah. Um, or Magnum uh, P.I., that was kind of his. Yeah, or Magnum P.I., yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, I'm not saying that he wasn't a serious actor necessarily, but you're not hiring Tom Selleck for dramatic range. Yeah. You're hiring Tom Selleck because he's a kind of, you know, stoic, but he has this kind of um, down to earth kind of uh, appearance. But he's also he's got a good comic timing. He's a good comic actor yeah. as well. Um, and he feeds off other people in that kind of context as well. So to- the Tom Selleck role and it, it, it works for Matthew Quigley because Matthew Quigley is he's kind of like a pragmatist and a realist. He's also um dropped into this situation where he witnesses such horrific events that you can't can't correlate the lightheartedness of the film of the film's protagonist almost with the events happening around him yeah and it's even it's not as if this this tone happens you start off light and you go dark and it stays dark because he's, no, still, fl- he's, still, he's still cracking jokes and, and funny things yeah. are still happening in the third act um when when we've seen all this horror, so it's not like you think you're watching something light, but oh no, this is the reality of you know in, you know what happens yeah. when colonialism takes over, and therefore yeah. the film is telling you something. It's just yeah. like it's 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 mismatched because it's it's, it's think, an odd shift. Yeah, I don't I don't I honestly don't think a film like the I don't think Quigley Down Under would could be remade in a similar way now. It doesn't. I mean, times have changed a little bit. The the, the tone of the film is so so oddly varied that. Yeah. I don't think it would pass audience tests, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, a studio would have softened the edges of it, would have made it much more of a romantic comedy. And it is a romantic comedy in many ways, yeah. but it but it also touches upon quite dark themes. But having said that, I 
it's shocking in parts and it took it, it shocks when it makes that change. I don't necessarily think it's bad for that, though. In, you know, I think that actually what it's trying to do is something a little bit different, a bit tougher um, than you might expect from the film. My only issue with it is if you were going into the film expecting one thing, yeah. it's probably not that thing you're going to get. I, I think that's true. And but this, this is where we come back to the music cues you in the music, which is constant throughout cues you into yeah. this kind of movie you know, the, yeah the, the very beginning it's a it's a little pipe going and it swells oh, yeah. to a western yeah. theme and you yeah. see that the the buckles are being tightened and the the the, the, yeah. the lassos are being looped and this kind of stuff yeah. and that's what it tells you here's your film and that music is throughout the whole thing even during the most dramatic moments it's still that kind of thing so it's not like that shifts or even you know if there's been a moment when he sees you know the the, the murders and the music cuts and you're left with silence Maybe that that would be an indication of this is what's happening. I think it. You're right. It's it's a hard movie to make because either you make it and don't include you know all of the the, the kind of colonial baggage that comes with it, in which case it's yeah. kind of dishonest, or you do it. But if you're going to do it, you've got to do it properly, as in you've got to show yeah. how horrific it is. In which so, case, yeah. it's not a gay romp. Um, no, it isn't. <laughs> so it, it is. It's a hard one to make. And this it's a hard I, one to make. Yeah. And this is what I was thinking is you know quickly I think it went through some development processes. They had different actors lined up for it, and it took a long time to come out. And, you know, mm. in 1990, this kind of cowboy movie wasn't being made. You weren't too no. far away from Unforgiven, which is like the, 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 the inversion of the cowboy trope. Yeah, and yeah that, was, that was 92 or 93, yeah. I think. So, so, it was a good years yeah. afterwards. Yes, but not too famous. It's the same bracket. Um, yeah. You know, you had Young Guns, which, though it was you know, more of a brat packy movie, was had a different edge to it as well. Yeah. But that was yeah. about, you know, maybe Silverado was a couple of years before that, which is the closest yeah. you can get to it. But yeah. this kind of Western, it would have worked in the 60s, maybe. It would have um, worked in the 60s, yeah. Uh, maybe the early, uh, maybe the 50s, actually, because when you think about it, the 60s, 70s, the Cowboys were still having their, this was the Sam Peckinpah Westerns, which... Yeah, that's true, yeah. So yeah, really, they would be really tough, really dark. Yeah, so this is more like... Um, yeah, yeah, so this, um, yeah, Sam Peckinpah would have done a great job of this. Um, yeah. But this, then, is more like um, a retro cowboy film. It's, it's, it's it harkening is. back, you know, Tom Selleck, we said, he, we get, we have just been harping on about the film, but actually he's a very strong, charismatic lead. He's perfectly cast as the cowboy. He plays it to the hilt. Um, yeah. And he does he's, it very he's well. He's brilliant in, in, in the lead role. I think he's a fan, I think he's, he, I can't imagine another actor playing, yeah. uh, Quigley. I yeah. can't. It, he's, 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 he's perfect for the role and he, he delivers it well. In fact, the three main actors, Laura Sangiamanco, um, Tom Selleck and Alan Rickman all put in fantastic performances and they hold the film together really brilliantly yeah I, I, I don't want to give the impression that the tonal shifts in the film meant that i didn't think the film worked i think what's interesting about it is that in spite of those very distinctive styles of um storytelling the film holds together surprisingly well um despite that um and i felt in some ways actually i the characterization and the character development that took place because of those darker scenes was really interesting as a consequence of that. It moved the film on and I was invested in the characters yeah. a lot more than I probably would have been if it was just a gay romp, for example. Yeah. Um, it, it, re it really drew me into the characters more. And yes, I was shocked at the certain scenes in there, but they are shocking. And, you know, in many ways, they should be shocking in that context. It just jars a little bit when a scene, a couple of scenes later is, is Tom Selleck and um, Crazy Cora fumbling in the outback and him going, oh, I'm not going to have sex with you if you call me Roy again. And she goes, well, Roy, you know, you didn't yeah. like you didn't. You think, well, this is a bit weird. But yeah, it, despite that, it, it works quite well. Um, the only thing I was going to say was I'd seen Quigley Down Under before 
and I'd seen it in the early 90s. Um, and I, I, I don't remember a lot about the film, I have to say, uh, having watched, you know, in, in that intervening period. But I did remember enjoying it. And I did remember thinking at the time, this is this. It's for some reason it stuck with me. For some reason, um, I am aware of the film Quigley Down Under. I'm aware of having watched it. And I remember I remember quite a lot about the film, actually, despite not having seen it for about 20 years, um, which is an odd thing. I remember the, the, the kind of narrative arc. So I, I remember some of the specific scenes. I remember that I remember thinking this is harder than than I was expecting it to be. I remember all of those things. So it obviously stuck with me quite well. So when when you said uh, the, ne- the next weekend of comedies is going to be Quigley Down Under, it pleased me quite a lot because I was actually thinking about films like Quigley Down Under. I think I'd like to watch that again because it's been ages and I remember really enjoying it. The other thing I was going to say was the only frustrating thing I have, and it, I mean, it's not it's not a flaw of the film necessarily because it happens in so many films, is this idea of the the fallacy of the talking killer. So this is a, a, a phrase coined by Roger Ebert, famous um, film critic um, of the Chicago Times, actually. Um, and the, the fallacy of the talking killer is an interesting an interesting idea. And it, it, it happens a lot in Westerns, particularly, but happens in any kind of action film when there's a, a two protagonists, a hero and a villain, as it were. Lots of James Bond films it happens in where realistically all Alan Rickman has to do is shoot him. It's all he has to do. And he he could have done that right at the start. He could have done it within about the first 20 minutes of the film. Instead of release, instead of tying them up and having them dropped in the outback, he could have just killed them. And then he would have had any of this trouble. And at the end, they've captured him. They've gone to all of this trouble of capturing him, brought him back to the, the ranch, bringing him back to the ranch, tied up. He, rele- he releases him and gives him a pistol and then says, all right, let's have a fight. It's the fallacy of the talking killer. And, you know, I understand exactly that if Alan Rickman had killed Quigley at the start, the film would only be 25 minutes long. So it has to draw itself out. But the consequence of that is that it's not particularly realistic in that way. And I I appreciate that a film like Quigley Down Under doesn't necessarily need to be realistic. I completely appreciate that. But given that some of the things that happen in the film are played absolutely dead seriously, the villain, actually, Alan Rickman himself his actions, they don't translate like that, particularly in the film itself. Any of the very shocking scenes are delivered not by Alan Rickman, but by his orders. He's 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 not seen on screen when the Aborigines are being forced off the cliff, yeah. where there's the attack in the cave, for example. He's not on screen. He has nothing. I mean, I know that he's ordered that, but he has nothing to do with that scene that you're seeing. The only scenes you see Alan Rickman are him being a bit of a petty child. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or thinking I'm better than you, therefore I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this stuff. So, although he that makes him a pantomime villain, but it also brings in this idea of, well, I've seen this a million times. Yeah. I've seen seen this. You have to keep the film going. So you have to you, instead of just killing him, you have to just let him go. Yeah. And well, capture this, him yeah. again. Let him go and capture him again and let him go and capture him again. Yeah. Well, this actually comes into what I was thinking is the 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 break into Act Two, which is pretty much begins when he comes through that window when Alan Rickman is thrown through the window yeah. it, the, the, the introduction's over and we're into what what happens next yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. and that seems very abrupt because again until that moment Quigley was sitting at the table op- the opposite end of the table chatting mm-hmm. to Alan Rickman and, and the next minute he's flying through the w- window which is again a great comedic moment it's, it, it it, is, it's yeah. filmed wonderfully but it is out yeah. of whack with basically the reality of, of what we'd seen so far and also um, Quigley himself and we mentioned he lost his temper once 
you you can't. The reason they don't show it is because it's funny. But they don't yeah. show it because actually it's difficult to imagine Matthew Quigley rising from his end of the table in yeah, a great rage, picking up Marsden and flinging it in through the window with such force that it smashes all the glass and he's thrown across the yard. That's that's not what you'd imagine to do. So they don't show it, and then it happens yeah. again. And I just think that was actually poorly played because it's again. Marston is telling Quigley he's here to kill Aborigines. He's he's not showing it. It's the show don't tell. If, yeah. for example, though, we'd gone up to the high range on you know, the next morning and Marston yeah. said, Quigley, bring your rifle. I'm going to tell you what your job is. And yeah. then he points to say Aborigines saying, kill them. And we don't know yeah. which way Quigley's going to go. And there's, that actually creates quite a lot. I'm rewriting the film now. They're creating quite a lot of tension because it's like, yeah, oh, he's suddenly realized what he's here to do and he can physically see it. And he's got, you know, it's his decision moment. Do I pull the trigger? and you know, yeah. become a murderer or do I disobey my employer and all his armed management yeah. and maybe then he escapes and then he's caught in the outback and then the adventure starts from there so he's not released from it but he's also shown much more acutely what he's been here to do because actually until Alan Rickman goes through that window Quigley could just say I'm sorry there's been a terrible mistake I don't want to yeah. do this I'll just yeah. take, I'll take money if I resign because that, there's no amnesty there he can just say you've made a mistake I'll give you your gold back if you want to but I'm going home because I don't want to do this um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but that, that's where the that's where Quigley as a moral character comes in as well. He isn't a passive recipient of no, no. events going on around him. He he, it's built up from the very start of the film yeah. where he the the bollock punching yeah, and the, the uh, punch, and the, yeah. the saving the crazy Cora. Yeah, saving he, crazy Cora. So you know right from the start that he is if 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 there's a moral or an ethical dilemma, he is not going to take the easy yeah. way out. Yeah. He is he is a respectable moral individual. Yeah who is defined by his actions in which, that regard. Yeah, which brings me to my second point, is he's pretty much exactly the same character when he gets off on the boat as if when he gets off it. Um, yeah. he, Quigley does not change that the entire film. And you'd, because even you'd think, you know, maybe his, well, his experiences with, you know, in Australia would change him. They don't really. He's still morally righteous and brave yeah. and all that kind of stuff. He's, he's again, he has a moral centre that is that's unchanging. You'd wonder, yeah. is it his relationship with Crazy Cora? Does she soften him? But actually, no, he's always very respectful of her. Mm. And he's always very, you know, he learns to love her, but he's, he never, she never drives him so crazy that he can't stand to be in. She, he, he, she winds him up when she thinks he's not him. But actually, that doesn't change either. He, they, they, they learn to, to love each other, but he doesn't change him as a person. Doesn't change him, no. Cora goes no. through the journey. Um, she does, yeah. yeah. Um, so Cora is the, is the heart of the film. In, yeah. in, 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 she's the emotional core of the film. Yeah. And, and it's a quite a tough role because it's, it's a supporting role. Yeah. But what I think Laura Sanjiamanka does is she invests a lot of her talent into making you feel sympathy for her, rooting for her, and, and following her, her, kind of character arc believably I think it's a very believable role and actually we can segue now into the uh, the actors themselves it's funny how we're right I mean I agree with you completely the, the three actors the three main actors putting fantastic roles and their performances really pull the film up and yet again I, Tom Selleck did not get many films off the back of this I can't no. remember a single leading role he had since then Laura oh, Sanjicamo went on again didn't get any other leading roles she was in Pretty Woman as a supporting role I think again Maybe a year yeah. or two later, and then. I mean, I would say it's Laura Sanjiamanko's main role. I mean, you know, she's not even that well known for completely down under. It's Sex Lies and Videotape, yeah, yeah. which was made in the late '80s, which is a Steven Soderbergh film, I think. Yeah. Um, and she's very good in that as well. She's a really good actress. Um, but yeah, she, she has not been given that lead role. She's only ever been a supporting well, actor. She, she went to the doldrums of sitcom where she was in Just Shoot Me. She was the, the, the yeah. principal character in that, so that was TV. I'm guessing yeah. maybe because she's hard to cast. It's um, Possibly, yeah. Because I, 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 I was thinking, why didn't she get more roles? I'm thinking, what role 
would you know could she have played that I can you know easily place her into? Again, she's a I guess she's just a difficult cast. She's a very good actress, but not easily yeah. placed in the same way Meg Ryan you could probably quite easily place in, in a number of yeah. roles as they did. Yeah, um, absolutely. No, you're again, right. Yeah. I'm really to the reason why um, again Tom Selleck didn't go further than this, probably because there's there was no call for the kind of heroic muscular roles he was playing. Yeah. As, as, as you, you mentioned earlier that the film was was a, a kind of a hark back to the fifties yeah. and, and early sixties westerns, and I think Tom Selleck is that kind of actor. His heyday should have been in the fifties yeah. and sixties because he would have been a fantastic lead in westerns. Now, actually, Tom Selleck has worked with the director of Quickly Down Under five or six other times on westerns. Okay. In, in the late 90s and early 2000s, but they're straight to videos. Yeah. But they obviously like working with each other, and they obviously enjoyed making Quigley Down Under, and I think yeah. that shows. You know, interestingly, I can't remember what the director's called, Simon Wincott, I think. Um, I'm not sure entirely, but he went on to make... He went, oh, I see, yeah, he went on to make um, Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, the <laughs> third Crocodile Dundee film. Yeah. Well, interestingly, he, he's a native-born Australian, so either he was picked to give the thing some authenticity, or he... You know, chose to put a lot of you know labour of love into it. Um, yeah. The funny yeah. thing I was talking about quickly not changing is when when young me saw this and had no knowledge of how to you know, other films, or there was no capacity to research things, there was no internet. Yeah. I just assumed Quigley Down Under was just the continual adventures of Matthew Quigley. I assumed it was. It, I, there was no, I, that is exactly what I was going to say yeah. as well. Yeah. Quigley uh, totally. rides again. Quigley, Quigley, yeah. Uh, Quigley yeah. the beginning. Oh, kind of stuff. I, I really enjoyed Quigley Down Under. I must I must catch the first of the films. Yeah. Quigley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It yeah. so seemed like Quigley, because he just seemed like it's st- the character steps out, you know exactly who he is, yeah. they've established yeah. everything, he's going to have an adventure in Australia, and then he'll go off and have an adventure somewhere else. I mean, they, there's a franchise in it. They're totally, and there should have been, really, because yeah. it, it, I think it's a good, he's a good enough actor, he's a good enough character yeah. to deliver that. In you know, Even if it was like a TV series, you know, the Quigley TV series would have been really good. But I think that's what, that, the film works really well in that, because it's quite hard to sell a film based on the lead character's name when you have no idea who the lead character is. Yeah. And it's a hard sell on the basis that Westerns in the early 90s and late 80s weren't particularly popular. The resurgence in Westerns hadn't taken place. It wasn't a revisionist genre. Either. Yeah. And quickly down there, and there isn't a revisionist film either. Yeah. It's a homage to those. And also, it's a Western that isn't set in the Wild West. Yeah. It's a Western that is set in the outback. So those things didn't have a lot going for it, I don't think. All of those things worked against it. Yeah. And yet... You immediately warm to Quigley. You immediately warm to the story he's actually going through. And you immediately understand who he is, where he is, and how he fits into that landscape, I guess. And I think that's really successful. And that's primarily down to, to Tom Selleck, I think, and the script, yeah. which I think is really good. And also, again, and also the trappings. We say about the music, the, the, the close-ups yeah. on the, the Western stuff. You're being told that this is a comfortable Western. This is, this is, this, you are familiar with who this character is and how he steps out. I mean, I'm yeah. guessing what sold this film, because I think it made its, made, made its money back. It wasn't a flop. It just wasn't... No, it didn't, nice. didn't propel right. its stars to, to anything from it. But um, I'm actually, I mean, it was the down-under part that sold it. You know, there was probably more interest in Australia in the late 90s, early 90s than it was yeah. in Westerns. So the yeah. down under is like whoever whoever Quigley is, he's gone under. Yeah, Australia, we'll see some kangaroos. Um, and yeah, he, there, there is there is like footage of kangaroos, and it goes they're kangaroos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're funny animals, aren't they? Yeah, you're right. It's probably. I mean, even though um, I mean, what was Crocodile Dundee? That would have been in '86, maybe '87. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a couple of years earlier. But I I still think Quigley was riding the wave Absolutely, of, yeah. of the kind of Australian um, uh, kind of 
popularity yeah. in Hollywood at the time. Before we wrap up, let's look at the because yeah. we look we like to look at small characters in small films. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the, the two henchmen that get gunned down by Quiggy, the two successful henchmen that yeah. get completely asked up by their boss. Um, yeah. So Ben Mendelsohn, this is O'Flynn, and he is he's the gun. Um, he's I can now I think about it. He's he's twitchy. He's wiry. He he wants to be a fast drawer. He's clearly as good at shooting stuff. Um, yeah. And he again the character is basically hero worshipping Marsden, who he sees as a crack shot and he's like oh Mr. Marsden will I, will I be this will I be that um, but he's also one of the most resentful of Quigley is someone who steals yeah. or steps in the way of his affection so he's almost like yeah. the, uh, the, the, the the put aside son he reminds me a little bit of um, is it Cletus from the Simpsons <laughs> slap your joke <laughs> <laughs> a little bit he's a little bit like Cletus from the Simpsons in my mind you know he's yeah. a bit he's a bit gormless he's, he's, he's always in an undershirt he's wearing, the pink, he's wearing the pink um, union suit the undershirt with the, yeah, the rest exactly, of the front exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's gormless, but at the same time, he's dangerous. Well, yeah, even even when he gets Quigley, he's he's standing yeah. over him, and he's, he can't believe it. he's yelling out, "I got Quigley!" It's yeah. like someone yeah. tell me that I have got Quigley. Don't tell me I've shot the wrong person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, as a complete contrast, we have Mr. Dobkin, um, who I yeah. feel a lot of sympathy for because he he clearly he basically he's appears, put upon, isn't he? He's put upon. He's almost like a a, a Quigley character himself. He's he's a tall, strong, silent type. He's, he's a pre- Heathcliff type character. He's, isn't he? he's a pre-Raphaelite uh, henchman. <laughs> And when I say, yeah, you, you look at um, other other main henchmen from the past, Die Hard, um, I would say that Carl's hair, that long, straggly blonde hair, is, is nothing compared to the thick, slightly <laughs> curling locks of Mr. Dobkin. Oh, I'm going to have to splash my face with cold water in a bit, I think. <laughs> but he's clearly quite good at his job. He, run, he, runs, the, yeah. the, um, he runs the ranch. He's, he's the only one who survives an encounter with Quigley. Um, he, yeah. and, and unlike Marsden, who is basically just flinging his men at Quigley, you know, and, and we're seeing which order they'll die in, he seems genuinely upset when Quigley kills his guys. Um, yeah. And so he does all this. Yeah, exactly right. He, he does. He, and he, yeah, it, 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 I, I, it makes me wonder why they don't um, overrun um, Marsden <laughs> anyway. Marsden seems like a right. He, he seems like a he's, a. he's an idiot, isn't he? Yeah, really. I mean, yeah. he's, he's he's a horrible character, but. Why are they so beholden to him? Is well, it just the, the man- I think it's aristocracy. Also, also the aristocracy is played into it. They're, they're, it's implied that he's the you know, the English the English heritage. They're Irish. Um, mm. You know, the, the red coats have his back. So it's again, it's. I think again, this might be the Australian sensibility of you know the Poms um, yeah, holding yeah. it over them. There's yeah. a, there's a class thing going on there that Marsden is because there's even when O'Flynn is muttering to Dobkin, he's saying you know we're sitting out here eating cold mutton and they're dining there with their their mint mm. jelly. Um, so they're, they're, they're clearly <laughs> that defines aristocracy, doesn't it? Nothing jelly. defines aristocracy more than mint jelly. Mint jelly. If it was mint sauce, that's different. Proper mint sauce no, with course. vinegar. Mint sauce is for the masses. That absolutely. Is. Mint jelly, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but that's 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 the what's playing in there. But yeah, but they they do all this. They do their job at great personal risk and achieve great success. And then their boss gets them both killed. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's like, you've done all the job, yeah. I'm going to undo everything. It's like someone, you've, you've done a good piece of work and your line manager comes over and unpicks the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Do it, or, or, yeah, t- takes the credit for it, but yeah. then realises that you plagiarised it in the first place <laughs> and you all get sacked. <laughs> well, thanks. Great. Well, now we're all in trouble, aren't we? Not that that's ever happened to me. Absolutely. Not... All, all references here are fictional. So <laughs> those, those are the two sides of the characters. If, yeah. if, we've, if we've now completed our deep dive, um, well, I think we, can, we have. It's, it's yeah. interesting to say that in ep- it's taken three episodes of Weekend at Crombies for us to develop a new um, a, a new section of, of <laughs> the podcast, which is now a, a, not only a deep dive, but a deep, deep dive of secondary characters. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> we shall return to give uh, the the scores, the floating Crombie head scores for Quickly Down Under and to learn what film we should be reviewing in April. 
Welcome back, and now we shall give our scores for Quiggy Dan Under. Uh, I think it's it's. I go first. That's this usual yeah, form, isn't it? I, I will yeah. I will designate my score from one to five floating crombie heads for Quiggy Dan Under. And I did Bro, think uh, on this. I'm excited here. I thought on it, and if you've listened to the podcast, good on you. You've you've made it for two hours. But if you've listened <laughs> to it, we've had a lot of nitpicks and a lot of quibbles and a lot of little, you know saying how totally weird it is and this kind of stuff. Yeah, and how, and, yeah. But for all that, yeah. and I'm trying not to let nostalgia cloud me, I think this film is worth three floating crombie heads. Okay. And I would give that mostly on the strength of the performances. I think they pull it up a lot. I think if you're just watching it as a, you know, a single watch, there's some, if you want that kind of you know standard cowboy action, there's some good cowboy stuff in there. There's some gunfights, there's some stoicism, there's some jokes, there's some romance. There's a probably a bit more to think on than you'd imagine. If you're braced for that, I think you'll have a good time watching it. So, three floating crombie heads for me. That's very interesting, Hugh. Um, so, I, uh, I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you've said there. We, we have, we have, I think, pulled apart quite a lot of the plot points and the tone of the film during, um, this episode of Weekend at Crombies. And, um, I think, you know, that, that might sound like it's, we are being overly critical of that. I think maybe we are being overly critical, but I think as a whole, the film works much more than the sum of its parts in many ways. And again, I agree with you that the actors really make the film. They drive the, the characters, they drive the story. I think the script is really good as well. And I had a thoroughly good time watching it. And as a result of that, I'm going to give, um, Quigley Down Under four Crombie heads. Mm. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I remember enjoying it the first time around. It stuck with me for some unfathomable reason, and for some unfathomable reason, I really enjoyed it this time. Well, it, the, the time flew by, and I think it's a rip-roaring adventure. There we go. With a bit of a message as well. Uh, an aggregate score of 3.5 floating crombie heads. Does that make it the lead? Is that now above Santa Claus the movie? Yes, because we both gave Santa Claus the movie three we disembodied. Did. We did. I, I will, I'll probably admit, if I was allowed to give half marks, I'd probably give it a three and a half, if I'm honest. But um, because it, because I enjoyed the film and there is an, an, a touch of nostalgia in there, I've, I've bumped it up to a four rather than three. And we are, of course, not allowed to give half marks. No, so disregard everything I said. <laughs> so in fact, it's not three and a half aggregate score because I've just given it a half marks. It's a seven out of ten crumbie head. That's, that's a better score. So it's, we, it's a seven. But that's it. That, that we now close the book on Quigley Down Under, hang up the Stetson, and we will go on to, to April, uh, where we will learn, well, I will learn, James presumably already knows, what we're going to be watching in April. Yes, indeed. So um, I have um, been thinking about this quite a lot, and I'm still a little bit undecided as to what film I'm going to choose. I have two films in my head, and I've decided that I'm just going to say a film and be damned with it. So <laughs> the film that is going to be the April weekend at Crombies is Runaway Train. Runaway, Runaway Train. Train. So that's a 1985 film starring John Voight and Eric Roberts as they escape from prison onto the titular Runaway Train. You know, we, we'll go into the reasons as to why I've chosen Indeed. Runaway Train. Runaway we'll Train. Go yeah, we're going to the reasons of, 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 of why I've chosen it and, and, and the, 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 the detail of the plots. But obviously, given that we live in 2018, any listeners who want 
a little bit of a plot synopsis beforehand rather than listening to over two hours of plot synopsis in the actual uh, podcast, can, can visit websites like Letterboxd or the IMDb, for example. Are they, are, are they our new sponsors? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> That's true. We're not being yeah. sponsored by IMDb yet. Yet. No, not yet. We're not. No, Amazon are, uh, are knocking at our door. Other websites are available. <laughs> Okay then, Runaway Train, um, so join us in April for that, and until then, enjoy your Weekend at Crombies. Evening all. Weekend at Crombies. Tiny guys can be top guys, if, if the Rainbow Connection taught us nothing else, it taught us that. <laughs> if, a li- if, a little, if a little frog called Robin can sing on a log and, and win the nation's heart. I have literally no idea what you're talking about now. <laughs>